0: Are you overachieving and still suffering? When you're socializing, do you feel like you're pretending and performing? Do you keep asking why? Why earn more achievements just to collect another win? Why pursue another plaque or medal or line item on my resume if it's for vanity's sake rather than out of passion? Why work so hard to capture the dreams I've been taught by society To want when I continue to only find emptiness. You try to talk to your friends, but they lecture you instead of listening. They fix instead of feeling. If you want to feel safe, secure, and supported, reclaim your voice and purpose, go to thrivewithleo.com for one on one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Yvonne Liu, who is a freelance writer based in Los Angeles whose work has appeared in the New York Times, Salon, Newsweek, NBC News, and Insider. Over 1.5 million people have read her HuffPost essay on why she kept her adoption a secret for over 60 years. She has published essays and op-eds on mental illness, adoption, and childhood trauma. She is writing a memoir, I talked to my mother in the clouds about overcoming childhood trauma, a newborn abandoned in Hong Kong, a malnourished baby in an orphanage, and then a childhood with a severely mentally ill adoptive mother. Readers and listeners worldwide said that her story made them cry, but also gave them hope. Yvonne is most proud that she has thrown off decades of shame and has minimized generational trauma. Welcome to the podcast, Yvonne Liu. What got you out of bed this morning?
1: Well, I knew I was taping this podcast, so that definitely got me out of bed. Also, I am writing another piece for a national outlet. And so uh, I know when I have a deadline, I get my butt moving. Uh,
0: it, there is something about having a deadline. I don't, I don't do well if I don't have uh, some type of restrictions, boundaries, expectations put on me. If it's too much, then it feels overwhelming, but just enough is, is motivating. The, totally agree. And so for you, writing has been an outlet. You know, you're, right now you're working on a memoir. I talked to my mother in the clouds, and it's about overcoming childhood trauma. What, what type of trauma are we referring to?
1: Well, I was um, abandoned as a newborn at day four in a stairwell in Hong Kong, Leo. And then thankfully someone notified the police and I was taken to an orphanage and I'm sure the people there tried their best, but it was post-war and I was malnourished and I basically lay in a cot next to other babies and toddlers all day and where I was fed um, watered down formula and porridge every four hours. And then based on three black and white photos, a Chinese-American couple in the Midwest adopted me. And so, of course, that changed the trajectory of my life. I was thankful to be adopted out of that orphanage, but sadly, my parents suffered a lot of trauma themselves. My mother was diagnosed as a paranoid borderline
0: narcissist. So, paranoid, borderline, narcissist. Can you talk to us what that means? Like, how did how did you see that behaviorally in your mom?
1: Well, she was mercurial and she was volatile. I never knew whether I could come home from school and cuddle next to her um, in her bed, or if she would be screaming and ranting at me. For example, when I was thirteen. She basically grabbed me when I was reading a novel in my bed, grabbed me to a full length mirror and started hacking off my waist long hair. I was in complete shock. So that was pretty traumatic.
0: Yeah, not knowing who you can come home to or who you're going to come home to. And so your mom is paranoid, borderline narcissistic. And then your father, what 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 was your father diagnosed with anything?
1: Well, I don't think he was officially diagnosed, but he's definitely suffered a lot of depression. Also, there's a lot of shame about mental illness in communities of colors and, you know, in the Asian American community. I mean, the word um, model minority, that phrase wasn't coined then, but my parents really wanted to put up a good front. My father was highly educated. He had a PhD in organic chemistry and was extremely smart. He could fix uh, any, uh, any problem on a factory floor, on the factory floor, but he couldn't solve the problem of my mother. Also, it was very hard to find a professional mental health provider of color who was culturally sensitive and also spoke Chinese that my mother could, could go see. So she only saw one a few times, sadly.
0: Yeah, being in the Midwest, it, it limits your, your cultural options. I mean, you know, people think of Chicago and the big cities, but what's, what city did you grow up in?
1: I grew up in Sinclair Shores, Michigan, which is a suburb of Detroit. And I was, um, you know, my classmates, by and large, were wonderful to me. And, uh, but I, my brother and I were the only uh, Chinese Americans in our elementary school uh, for many years. And when we graduated from high school in our class, well, in, you know, each class was about 600 to 650. There was maybe at the most seven or eight um, Asian Americans.
0: That's wonderful to hear because typically when we hear of Asians, you know, being a, a, the, the minority especially in a place so close to Detroit, you think there's going to be harassment, bullying, but it sounds like you had the opposite experience. What do you think contributed to that?
1: Well, my classmates were very overall, very nice to me. I mean, there was a random one or two kids who said chink, chink, chink. I was also there during the Vincent Chin incident, and I actually worked for General Motors. And so one time my car was keyed, after I uh, went to my car after work and some people called me nip nip because the Japanese automakers were starting to eat into Detroit's Detroit big three market share.
0: It's amazing. I mean, amazing is not the word, but it's interesting how a lot of racism really is tied to capitalism, meaning once they start to see a certain a uh, group of people taking jobs or what they view as taking their jobs, all of a sudden this hatred or backlash uh, happens towards them. D- Go ahead.
1: No, it, it is sad but true. Usually people act out of fear.
0: Well, going back to your childhood, you know, you're uh, in an orphanage at age four so much research talks about the importance of touch human touch and how that can help the child, uh, with self soothing and also develop oxytocin. When you think about your childhood and your mom being paranoid, narcissist, did you experience a lot of touch, like soothing, calming touch, or do you associate your childhood with like fearful, anxious touch?
1: Well, um, so, um, Just to clarify, I was abandoned at day four, lived in the orphanage for 15 months. And so, but when I came over, I was undeveloped. I was malnourished. And so um, I spoke to my uncle recently. My adoptive mother, who I'll just refer to as my mother, she did care for me as best she could. So I like to think that she did love me, comfort me, because there are pictures where she is cuddling me. But we all know the studies that show how important those first months and years of a child. I unfortunately probably didn't get a lot of touch uh, in the orphanage because they're overwhelmed with many babies, many toddlers. They're just trying to keep us alive.
0: Yeah. What what do you think is contributing to the number of babies in orphanages? I mean, is that something that you've Looked into, is that something that you've been curious about? Just the whole, like, you know, foster kids, orphanages, the number of babies and parents get, you know, quote-unquote, abandoning their, their babies?
1: Well, um, at that time, I was born in 1959. Culturally, it is a huge, huge stigma for uh, a woman to have sex out of marriage. So there would be an incredible shame for someone to give birth to a child out of marriage. But it's also not just maybe that someone had a child out of wedlock, had an affair, if she was a prostitute. There's also, sadly, in the Asian culture, there is a favoritism for boys. If a family is so, so poor, they might keep a boy, or even they would give it to a relative to raise their boy. But if they're very, very poor, they might abandon a baby. I don't really, I haven't really researched, you know, what causes abandonment in America. Though I think we've seen examples and um, there's those boxes at fire stations and so on and so forth, because what it is is it could be an unwed mother. It could, the person could be on drugs, so on and so forth. As someone said to me, when someone abandons a baby or when someone is given up for adoption, there's always trauma. And in this adoption triad, and I've done a lot of research on that, there's trauma all all around. The birth mother, the adoptive parents, and the child himself. So even my therapist has said, though I couldn't verbalize it, I still knew that my birth mother left me. Maybe I'd like to tell myself, and my therapist said, maybe there was someone in that orphanage who I called Naima, which in Chinese means like wet nurse. Now they would... They would refer to that as a nanny. So I like to think that maybe someone maybe gave me a little more attention, something like that. And so you can imagine there I am in an orphanage. And in some of the documents, it said that I did seem to know everything was around me. And so my kids said, oh, you are nosy even then. You are very cognizant of everything that goes around. So for me to suddenly be picked up, put in a uh, some carriage, on some flight, some big steel thing, an airplane, and then land in America, and wondering who are these people? And there's a picture of me staring up at my father. It's like who are you? I am now thrown into this place where my parents um, they would speak a different dialect than what I probably heard in Hong Kong, and I now quote have a brother, and so there was a lot of shock. And so people call this well the the, the Going through the abandonment, the adoption, and also there were some physical and emotional abuse, I suffered what is called complex PTSD, which is not just one thing that happened to me, say horrifically, say a rape, but rather it was constant tension. As you had asked, right. I never felt relaxed at home. I never knew when the when the sh- when the other shoe would drop.
0: What was your refuge at home? I would imagine. Being a writer, you probably started off reading a lot. Did, what, did you take comfort in books? Like, what was your space of comfort or safety?
1: You, you, you got it spot on. I read, I read, I read. In the summer, sometimes I would read a novel a day. I feel, you know, some regret that I didn't have someone to nurture me to tell me what would be the great books to read. But maybe I could not have understood them at that time. My parents were readers. They read the Chinese newspaper. My father read the American newspaper. So books were my refuge. I love the library, it's the place where I dreamed dreams.
0: So, in that transition going from Hong Kong to Detroit, Michigan, and you said there was no one to tell you the great books to read, what were some of the books you would recommend? To a child, um, you know, maybe up to the age of in their tweens that they should read that, that might help them understand or help them feel less lonely in the world?
1: Well, there are so many great books that are available now than when I was young. There were very few books that were for young adults or middle age that are written by Asian Americans or people of color or adoptees. So I don't have a specific title, but there are books that can help someone navigate what it's like to go through something. So luckily, you know, the publishing world has expanded.
0: Absolutely. I, you know, that book H uh, Mark uh, comes mm-hmm. to mind. And uh, I mean, unfortunately, that's the only book that I can I can think of. But um, I, I'm sure that there are just a number of books, you know, just by Googling and even podcasts that one can listen to to kind of help feel connected uh, in whatever way that um, you feel needed.
1: Yes, and for like Immigrants, Beautiful Country by Chin Julie Wong is a beautiful book about the immigrant experience and, you know, what it's like to not have legal status. Also, All You Will Ever Know by Nicole Chung is a great book for adoptees.
0: I'll link to those in the show notes. I appreciate that. What, what do you think contributed to your dad's depression? Besides you mentioned your mom, were there other things? Did he have sleep apnea? Was he working long hours?
1: Well, he essentially survived. He had survivor's guilt. And so what it was is, you know, my, my mother would have been a hundred this year. They lived through a time of great change in China. Um, There were warlords, there was um, the Kuomintang took power, and then communists came in 1949. And so they were able to flee communist China with like two suitcases, landed in Taiwan. And then my father was fortunate enough, he came here to get his graduate degree. But there was that period called the Cultural Revolution where it was horrific for so many families, especially those who were educated. His family was poor, but educated But he had, um, I believe, eight brothers and sisters. They were sent to prison camps. They were sent to, for, you know, re-education. And one brother committed suicide. So he felt this guilt in terms of, why was I the only one to get out? And one day he sat there drinking um, probably scotch or whiskey and saying, I have lived in America longer than I've lived in China. Now, I have kind of a funny thing. Not funny. I can tell where someone's sort of culture, where their roots are, how they count. Do they count in English or do they count in Chinese or Japanese? My parents always counted in Chinese.
0: Wow, that's interesting. Survivor's guilt is so powerful. We know that, especially amongst uh, veterans who come back and and survive. And, um, you know, as you mentioned, people who escaped communism. I I know, I don't remember what years Mao ruled over there, but... um, I mean, just the atrocities that he completed the, so you you read, you come here, you read books. Now you have a new brother. Mm -hmm. Was he, uh, how old was he when you came over? And then can you describe what the experience or the nature of that relationship was like? Was he open arm from day one or was it something that had to be developed? Um,
1: I can't remember a lot of details of when I first came over, but my, my brother and I still enjoy a loving, close relationship. He is two years older than I am. And in many instances, he was really my protector. I mean, there were some instances where I thought I physically would have been maimed or killed. Yes. And so he's the one who intervened um, to tell my father, please don't do that. Please don't do that. And my mother did not intervene. Um, his circumstances are different. He was adopted at a much younger age and uh, he was a child who was born in America, not in Hong Kong. But um, that is one of the triumphs is that despite our parents, um, uh, the childhood we had, we are still close. And as my father, my brother said to me, when like he has three children, I have three children. He said, the best parental advice, Yvonne, do the exact opposite of what our mother did. So we can laugh about it. We we have a shared bond. I guess it, a bond shared through trauma, but also triumph.
0: Is there a part of you that is interested in adopting kids?
1: I'm too old at this age to adopt children, probably. I have um, three children who are um, 22 to 30. And so at one time I thought about it. But then I guess for someone who is an adoptee, just that, like one of the happiest days of my life is seeing, is seeing laying eyes on my first blood relative. My first child was born. However, you know, uh, we, through our, through our volunteer work, we support like underprivileged children in a school in Mexico. We feel we're giving back in that way. My husband and I. That's
0: so beautiful. And you mentioned your your father's, brother, one of your father's brothers committing suicide. And I saw on your Instagram that you also posted about the new nine eight eight and suicide prevention month and, and saying how close to home. Uh was it was there any at any point for you thoughts of suicide or depression? What were your internal struggles? Well,
1: I definitely have suffered from depression. And I, as I've written in my insider piece, I am uh, which is a milder form of bipolar, which means my highs are too high, my lows are too lows. And I've been very fortunate uh, to be able to um, have therapy um, to help me uh, modulate it and everything. But, uh, you know, I have to um, contain myself. My husband will say, now watch it, Yvonne, be careful. And I think that's also because that one, one grows up and you didn't get the affirmations. You spend your whole life, in a sense, trying to get affirmation from the outside. So therefore, when you get it, you become too happy. But then finally, I realize I have to stop seeking affirmation from outside. It's really from within. Because essentially, and funny, I, I was reading a whole um, Twitter thing this morning. About emotionally immature parents. And I had not heard that term before. They're emotionally immature, but they're also, my mother was mentally ill, but it's very similar to a narcissist. And that is everything revolves around that person. Your loyalty has to be a hundred percent to that person. And that person sees nothing wrong with lying and spinning tails to get her way.
0: Yeah, please talk to us more about the mild bipolar and managing that, because, uh, you know, w- when we see it in movies and TV, it's usually the extreme form, and we don't recognize the milder forms. Besides seeking internal validation and affirmation, how else are you managing the highs and lows? What are you intentionally doing and what are you intentionally not doing?
1: Well, exercise is very, very important. And so um, I swim twice a week. I also go out in nature. And then I basically meditate, pray. And then I th- think about what I'm grateful for. And that's the, the actually where the title of my book, I talk to my mother in the clouds. Because when I'm saying that, I'm talking to my birth mother. Because you see, in some sense, my adoptive mother... She kept many, many secrets from me. One of those was a note from my birth mother. So the night before I had breast cancer surgery, she finally gave a note from my birth mother that said, never forget me. I will never forget you. And that was, um, I wrote about it in my, and in New York Times, Tiny Love Stories. And I also spoke about it in this past summer in the Modern Love podcast, and what that note told me was that my mother gave me up in love, And it's true. She did not put me, say, in a dumpster for me to die. She put me in a busy place because she wanted me to live. And so when I walk, I look at nature, I look in the clouds, I think that I thank my mother for giving me up in love. So just self-care means um, also controlling my scheduling not doing too many things at once, so on and so forth. And, um, you know, having lunch with a friend or talking with someone, or just letting the mind go to rest. Um, watching a TV show, uh, you know, growing up, um, I learned about popular culture and American society from television and Dear Abby. <laughs> you know, I really learned about, uh, because uh, the culture the behavior accepted behavior is very different from someone who was born in China in the 1920s versus America. So I um, grew up watching Partridge Family, uh, My Three Sons, Courtship of Eddie Father. And so um, I've learned a lot about culture uh, through television. So television is a great escape.
0: It absolutely is. I have so many friends who've learned the English language, you know, from mm. watching Seinfeld and Uh, And you just learn about life. For me, it was the Cosby show growing up. But the Partridge family, I absolutely love. Actually, that theme song, I have to to replay. I have to play it after this episode. Mm -hmm. You you talked about breast cancer. How did you detect that? How did that come about?
1: Well, my husband and I were actually um, doing what um, married couples do on their anniversary after a romantic dinner and a walk along the beach And uh, we were in bed and he discovered um, a small mass and I just said, oh, whatever, don't worry about it because uh, I have dense breasts and heck, you know, I'm so young, but he insisted that I go get it checked and it turned out to be breast cancer. And in some sense, you know, I kept that a secret for 28 years, just as I did my adoption, just as I did my mental health struggles, my family's mental health struggle because there's such a cultural force of stigma and shame about these issues. And that's why my memoir is about by letting go of these secrets of shame, by talking about them openly, you're helping other people. I helped to organize a breast cancer talk and then people went and got their mammograms because I uh, told, you know, for example, after I got my breast cancer, um, I insisted my mother-in-law, who never got a mammogram, get one. She got one. Cancer was detected and her life was saved. And she lived an additional 30 years. And now at the ripe, beautiful age of 92, we celebrated a a couple months ago, she sees five beautiful, healthy grandchildren. So I feel by throwing off these shackles of shame, we can help other people, let them live longer, better lives. And to live a more authentic self. And you had asked before about writing. Yes, writing has always been healing to me. Writing is the way I get out my feelings. Um, you know, the first um, crappy draft I can get out pretty quickly is just like, you know, ex- existential dump. But then, there's, of course, a lot of editing is required.
0: Grant, was there a teacher or a mentor or someone who kind of encouraged you or nudged your writing at, when you were young?
1: Right. Uh, So I was involved in journalism and from middle school and also in high school. And I was uh, the roving reporter uh, who would go uh, in the hallway and ask people, what was the most interesting thing you did this summer? What was your most embarrassing moment? So I was a shy, mousy girl. And journalism really brought me out. It was the first time that I said, had a sense of camaraderie that, wow, you would stay after we would, you know, uh, by hand make up these dummies and everything. It was also an escape because I had an excuse not to go home. Um, I could say, Mom, we're working on deadline and then I could stay late. And so I loved journalism. And that journalism teacher, Mrs. Bema, she was pretty um, awesome she really encouraged me. Unfortunately, my parents uh, being immigrants uh, and also because of parental favoritism, would not pay for my college. So therefore I wanted to go to University of Michigan to study journalism didn't get the opportunity. Instead, you know, which I'm you know, glad I learned a lot. I went to a work study program where I could earn enough money uh, so that I could attend college and live on campus away from home at least half the time. That was one of the happiest days of my life, going away to college.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, what was that experience like going away to college? I mean, you talked about how writing and journalism was an escape and then you're going away to college, which I would imagine, yes, you're escaping maybe the abusive parts of being at home. Um, but also, it, was there some like angst of like having to reestablish new connections and friendships and find a new tribe? Or were you just too excited about leaving the house?
1: Well, it's interesting. At that time, when people went to college, your parents just dropped you off, kind of. It's not the big to-do what it is today. There's a whole planned day of activities for the students and the parents. A formal goodbye. Um, I was very excited to go to college, but also I only lived away half the time because you worked at a General Motors facility. Earned, uh, I worked at Pontiac Motors Division, and you rotated back to school. There was some angst because I was, I suffer massive imposter syndrome. Okay. I uh, didn't have the opportunity uh, to study journalism or English. You know, we, um, I lived in a working class, uh, blue collar town. You know, I didn't come from the tony parts of Bloomfield Hills or Rose Point where people went to um, better schools. You know, was I up to snuff? And so I had those fears, of course. And, you know, would I belong? But I also realized in some sense in my life, I've tried too hard to become Part of a group to fit in, but uh, what I'm trying to do is replace the family I didn't
0: have. Yeah, speaking of family, you know, when you grow up in with a a father who is struggling with depression, a mom who is you know uh, borderline paranoid, uh, narcissistic, I would imagine that trust for you at a young age was tough. Trusting people, trusting other individuals. Did you, was there a concern of trust going into your marriage of, can I trust this person? Am I worthy enough to be loved? If, if there were those already, those feelings of abandonment initially.
1: It wasn't so much in my uh, marriage, but probably in other relationships. Essentially I looked at things as black and white. There was no gray. It was like my mother. You're either for me or against me. And if I find that for some reason you said something bad about me or didn't support me, I might cut you off, which is not its not someone with grace. And so I've learned that you have to give people the benefit of the doubt. But yes, there were certainly trust issues in other things and uh, probably more in the business side. And that is if you you got um, taken advantage of once. You say, no one will take advantage of me again. Or you learn, oh, wow, they outwitted me. They got me. They got me in a corner. And you realize, you know, I guess that, you know, my book, even though there is some trauma, it is one of hope. I mean, some person has said, I've never reached out to an author. I've reached out to you. My HuffPost piece. Why I Kept My Adoption a Secret for Over 60 Years was read by over 1.5 million people. What people say is, your story made me cry, but also gives me hope. It, it resonates with people. And so I feel I'm very privileged to be able to share my story, hopefully to encourage others. Adoptees, people who had traumatic childhood, people who have parents of mental illness have said, thank you for giving me a voice. And so I just want to do whatever I can um, to help shine a light on these issues. For example, I want to write an op-ed um, about the children of mentally ill parents. I mean, one study said that 7.2 percent of children have at least one parent or guardian who has poor mental health. And believe me, during the pandemic, I thought I felt so sorry for their children. At least going to school, it was an escape for people like children like me. It was a place of repose. You could at least get away from the house from nine to three. But anyways, that's something I'm very passionate about is to helping um, children, you know, who who unfortunately are in the same situation that I was.
0: Yeah, that is such a a powerful mission because there are some kids who, you know, have parents who are struggling with mental illness and then they're being bullied at school. So then they have no repose, uh, you know, no, no safe place to go um, unless there's a neighbor's house that they can stay at or a friend's house that they can stay with. You mentioned black and white thinking earlier, and I'm going to assume that, you know, part of your therapy is cognitive behavioral therapy. Are there any other, what other reframes or ways of thinking that you learn to change for the better?
1: To recognize transfer transference. To not identify with aggressor, all these psych terms. So the transference is true. For example, even yesterday, I am rewriting a scene, the scene in my memoir of when my mother hacked my hair, put me in a funk, um, shed a little tears, and then got snappy with my husband. But then I realized he is the, not the one to blame. And as he said to me, I am not your parents. So I have to check myself. And it doesn't happen as often as it used to. Believe me, therapy has helped a lot. But, you know, there was a lot of transference. Obviously, there was a lot of transference. Oh, you know, and I'm probably, I get defensive too easily. Because like you, this patriarchal man, was not tell me what to do. Okay? All right? I am the unfavored um, adopted child. No one will tell me what to do. It's <laughs> not a very good um, uh, demeanor or outlook
0: Remember, uh, So, uh,
1: hurting people hurt. My parents were very hurt and only through therapy and through writing this memoir in the beginning, believe me, I just sobbed and sobbed. Now I don't cry as much because I realized they had so much trauma themselves and nobody chooses to be mentally ill.
0: You talk about sometimes being defensive in a relationship. And the the Gottmans who I've I've had on, talk about how defensiveness is one of the four horsemen of uh, leading to the destruction of a relationship. How do you repair those instances where you are either defensive, or you find yourself transferring to your husband, or attacking, or being, uh, you know, just uh, maybe not handling your emotions in the in the best light? How do you verbally or, or actively repair that with your husband?
1: Well, I say the words that my parents never said. I'm sorry. For that was not my best self. I hope you forgive me. And also people have different um, what is it, um, love languages. To my husband, it would be acts of service. Finally, sew that button on that's been sitting there for months. <laughs>
0: And, and what do you find um, for your husband is, uh, uh, well, I, like if your husband has, you know, said something that maybe hurt you or offended you, what works for you in terms of him repairing things with you or with the relationship? Is it the same as him just saying or not just saying, but him saying, I'm sorry, and that wasn't my best self? Or do, or do you need something else?
1: Um, he will say he's sorry, uh, I'm under a lot of stress or so on and so forth. And, um, he will change his tone of voice and, um, you know, and I understand. And, uh, you know, in a marriage, um, uh, everyone has to give a little. One advice was the secret of a good marriage is left in some cases to leave some things unsaid but we've been married a long time. And I one thing I'm very thankful for is that my mother um, basically helped me get what she did not have. And that is a good marriage and a supportive husband.
0: The Going back to managing the mild bipolar uh, mm. diagnosis, does food or meds play into that? And I'm asking because... You know, myself, I struggle with depression and I recognize that certain foods can make me a bit more anxious or excitable. Like I don't have caffeine. Is there are there foods that you eat or don't eat to manage the mild bipolar?
1: Um, uh, I really, uh, right. I have to really control my caffeine. My family think it's laughable. I'll take a very, very small amount of like maybe one ounce of coffee and dilute it and dilute it so that I don't get overstimulated with caffeine. Also, um, no, I, I think like today is a gray day. You know, there was so much that was not understood before. I probably, I'm sure suffer from seasonal affected depression. And so I know those days. And then unfortunately it's not good, uh, but I'll go binge on carbs <laughs> and I, my mother did too. Uh, so I think there's something in the, that, that white bread, I forgot what the word is, that is very satisfying um, to the psyche.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, plus it's like nostalgic, right? Because if your mm-hmm. mom ate it and then it's kind of like, I know I, my go-to was ice cream. And it's just because I remember uh, eating ice cream with my mom. So there was like some subconscious way of wanting to reconnect with her. Um, are there parts that are you wait uh one are you done writing the book or are you still in the process of writing
1: i'm still in the process of writing it
0: okay because yes. mm-hmm. uh, i was going to ask if there are parts that you want to include in the book that it just doesn't flow in like you have to take it out just for continuity sake or you know pacing sake is there a story you're just like ah, i don't know if i can include this but, but, it's, but it's important. and it maybe could be told in a different form.
1: Yeah, that's such a good question. I guess what it is in the memoir, what they say is, you know, you have to have a thesis or a theme. And mine is that even if you had a very traumatic childhood, you can still have a good life. And also keeping the energy and the emotional angst of keeping these secrets weighs you down. By letting go of them, you can live your authentic self. I actually have some very funny antidotes, but I'm not sure if they um, um, tie into the theme. But people also said nobody wants to read a lot of trauma uh, porn. There has to be some moments of levity. So there's some pretty, well, for example, my mother would say some funny things. She was very old fashioned. She did not take a shower for, for decades until late in her life. And she came over and visited my husband and I for the first time. You know, I set out the bathroom very nicely, put towels and this and that for her, knowing she could only use the bathtub and my master bathroom. And then when I came back later, I saw that she had used my facial soap in the bathtub on her body. And I said, mom, you're, you know, you use my more expensive facial soap on your body. And she said, my body is equal to your face. (laughs) So she would. And so my mother is actually a thwarted writer. And so, but you know, I learned a lot from her. She, you know, She learned to drive in her forties, to swim in her fifties. She said, I will learn English so that my children can understand me better. So she was probably fairly intelligent but she didn't finish college and she had a lot of frustrations. I mean, she was in the Midwest with no Mandarin speaking other Chinese friends nearby her whole way of life turned upside down, but she had a pretty wicked sense of humor. (laughs) Yeah.
0: uh, You know, I was reading this book on delusions and so much, uh, uh, I don't want to say this is the case for everyone, but a lot of mental illness seems tied into thwarted uh, achievements or, Mm -hmm. or needs or, you know, wanting to get from point A to point B, not being able to have it. And then that, that energy, becomes destructive uh you know we turn it on ourselves that creative energy sometimes is so strong it doesn't have an outlet if you didn't have books if you weren't able to write uh who knows what path you if you weren't able to be a journalist right um you know that thwarted and even in love unrequited love when you love something so much but it doesn't love you back like what do you do with that and how painful that experience can be Uh, go ahead.
1: No, I I totally agree. And I have to say, I've never felt happier or more fulfilled than I have, you know, then since I first went public about my adoption in, uh, you know, New York times, and then written for these other national outlets, I'm finally doing what I felt I was meant to do, but, you know, maybe I didn't have the emotional maturity or, you know, the experience to write this before. Because I first was thinking of a nonfiction book to talk a a book and about how about resiliency. But I'm not a psychologist, I'm not a sociologist, I'm not a life coach. But I mistakenly thought that my family, my children didn't want me to write my own story. But we were on a family trip and I was talking, lamenting, like, oh, I will probably never get a book. I don't have the qualifications, you know, but I can't write my own memoir. And one daughter said, Mom, we never said you couldn't write your memoir. There's no shame in what you did. And I go, ah, and I started to write my memoir.
0: Wow, you got that external validation, that external yeah. affirmation. How beautiful is that?
1: Well, it was okay to write the story, but I won't name their names, essentially, which is fine.
0: Fair enough. Is, yeah. is there anything about your story or your, your journey that we haven't discussed that you think would be of importance to someone who is either um, struggling with parents who have mental illness or who has gone, who's been adopted um, or a- any of the things that we talked about?
1: You know, I um, regret that I kept my breast cancer a secret because what it is, even the studies have shown, is that when you self-stigma, self-stigma, you actually, your quality of life is lower. And then also I regret not talking about my mental health, my breast cancer adoption earlier, because I could have helped other people earlier. I would say that if if there's a young youth or a child in this situation, go to your school counselor, even though I know that they're overwhelmed reach out to someone. And if you're a neighbor or you're a relative and you see a child who's being abused, speak up. So many people didn't want to get involved. And nobody says, oh, it's their business. What is it my business? But you really could be changing someone's life. I mean, there were people who tried to mentor me, but sadly my mother, because of her issues, (laughs) kind of cut them off. Just the way the world has been, we just have to be more compassionate and help each other in every way we can.
0: Last question. I ask this of all my guests, because always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting mm. to end their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Yvonne?
1: Don't do
0: it. In a moment of despair,
1: we have all felt those moments of despair. Don't do it. Because you are valued. You are loved. You can get through this. You can get over the hump. I did. And you can too. You are loved. All the best to you.
0: Thank you so much, Yvonne. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you going to get help. Call the 988 or any of the international phone numbers. If you're in Hong Kong, Beijing... If you're in Sri Lanka, Budapest, wherever you are in the world, there are international phone numbers for you to talk, chat, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. And remember, uh, when will the book be released, Yvonne?
1: Well, I have to finish it. Uh, I've, I've been lucky. I have interest from lit agents because my help post went viral and because you know I've been writing pieces in national outlets. And so it's publishing is a long process. But I, I just realize, you know, I can't rush it. You know, it's there. People have said my story is so compelling and interesting; it will become a book. But, you know, it's it's not up to me when the timing will be. Hopefully, who knows? Two, three years.
0: I know, love I'll
1: it. Contact you.
0: I love it. Yeah, we'll have you back on. So keep your eyes out for "I Talk to My Mother in the Clouds," uh, and let's get to tomorrow together. Thank you, Yvonne.